Alright, so let's be honest. Political podcasts, political talk shows are overwhelmingly dominated by white people. Most notably, white men. And while some of that is okay, I tend to think that having so many conversations around politics, especially around politics concerning different demographics, black people, Latinx people, women, black women, LGBTQIA+, so on and so forth, it just doesn't make sense for white men to dominate that conversation as they have historically. And we're entering into an important election season. And I thought it's incredibly hard to find voices that look like me talking about this stuff from a really nerd, historical, data perspective. 538 is great, but it drives me absolutely crazy. All I see is white people. And yet all they ever talk about is the black vote in this city, the Latinx vote in this city. It's old. So we wanted to bring you something new. Something different. Something that should already exist more than it does. A platform, a space for the base of the Democratic Party, black people, women, Latinx people, to talk about politics, but in a nerdy way. So, we'll tell you a little bit more over the next few episodes about what we want to do, what's going to come together, what our vision for this show is. But for now, welcome to the base. Everybody, welcome to uh, the inaugural. I don't know if inaugural is the word. Like first, <laughs> inaugural makes sense, right? Yeah. yeah, we're starting something. Yeah, I remember when I was writing my first book, I used like penultimate, very wrong. Like it wasn't the second to last <laughs> thing, and I don't know. I just wanted like a big word. Good thing I had an editor. She was like, mm, "This is wrong." Um. Anyway, this is not the penultimate episode. Uh, this is the inaugural episode of the base where um, myself, Fred Curtis, uh, and the amazing Becca Schneeberg. Nyberg. Nyberg. Seriously, We've known each other Becca. for like three years. Um, <laughs> and you and, still don't know what my name is. Uh, I, you know, uh, it's, uh, it's about the, the effort and, and the, the, the compassion that you show people, not necessarily no, no I'm playing. Um, it's about the number of names you call me that don't involve my actual name. <laughs> oh, that's not true. Anyway. So, um, yeah, welcome. First episode of The Base. Um, and I know you're probably like, hey, you know, what am I listening to? Why am I here? Uh, there are a bevy of political podcasts out there. Uh, and I think we both recognize that <clears throat> very much so. Um, but I think we decided to uh, embark on this project um, for several reasons. Uh, one is that, um, and, you know, I'll definitely you know, allow Becca to allow, not allow, Becca will elaborate more on this. And, and this is, but this is a part of why we want to do podcasts like this, right? That little small snippet to where, like even me subtly and naturally using that word shows my patriarchal bias um, and how we need to, you know, work to acknowledge those things, uh, to allow others to call us out on them, uh, allow ourselves to be called out on it and so on and so forth. Um, so the reason for calling it the base is, is because we want to do a lot of that stuff um, within democratic politics. Beck and I worked together um, on a race in Maryland in 2018 um, and have stayed in good touch and, and since then and have decided to uh, really endeavor and embark on starting up. I don't even want to call it a consulting firm. I think it's more of a 
project management public relations uh, consortium. And meaning, uh, I think consulting firms have a really bad rap and a really bad name in some circles, justifiably so. Um, and for the most part, I think like consultants don't necessarily, I'm not going to say they don't work, but I think in the ecosystem of democratic politics, like they are uh, woefully overvalued. They're the, one, they're the ones in the ivory tower. Yeah. They're telling the rest of us how to do the work. Yeah. And, and all the while, like people who are on the ground make pennies on the dollar and really are probably making like $7 an hour when you think about it. And when campaigns end, you know, like all these wonderful people who are working not just for Biden areas, but all over the country, are like, hopefully they'll be elated on November 4th. And then they'll be running around trying to get pres- stock up on prescriptions on November 30th. And it's just like, that should not be a thing in democratic politics. And at some point, there needs to be uh, consistent, not just conversations, but push to action to change those things. Um, so that's 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 the base. A part of that also is you know there aren't enough there aren't enough circles, there aren't enough noto- uh, noticeable tables to where um, people who make up the base of the Democratic Party uh, have an opportunity to discuss uh, the state of politics, both on a local na- uh, local state and, and national scale, regardless of of what state. Um, regardless of what state you're in. So whether we're talking about, you know, black people, women, Latinx, Asians, you know, whatever else, um, so much of political discourse is dominated by white men, even leftist political discourse. I mean, like, you know, I'm not knocking anybody, but like, you know, Pod Save America and 538, like you've got a bunch of white guys (laughs) talking about leftist politics and what it takes to do this or win this. And it's just, we should have more folks who identify as and know people who end up winning democratic elections talking about democratic politics. So that's our, that's the spiel. That's why we're here. We hope you'll join us um, not only for this episode, uh, but for, for many more to come. Um, Becca, now that I know your last name, Nyberg, I guess there's a whole lot more I need to learn about you. So I'm going to be as intrigued listening to you here as, as the listeners are. Yeah, so I got involved in politics the first time in college, which I'm not even going to tell you how many decades, and yes, I can count it in decades, ago that was, um, down in North Carolina, and politics in North Carolina looks different than politics in Maryland, which is where I am now, and got involved there, got involved with the Young Dems on campus, and... I guess that kind of started my feeling of being a part of things, but not really. So being a part of things, but still being kind of on the outside, you know, not really being invited to the big, the big kids table, right? Like I was sitting at the kids table and moved away from politics for a long time and moved into more issue-based advocacy, did a lot of work on mental health, suicide prevention, Um, domestic violence, human trafficking, immigration. Um, I am an immigration attorney, you know, in my, with one of my other hats that I wear, um, doing more issue-based advocacy. And then coming back out of the 2016 election, I just didn't feel like I could sit on the sidelines anymore. And, you know, was I really on the sidelines that much, but, you know, at least the sidelines of the political arena. So, (laughs) you know, got got involved with that and got involved with, you know, races that I believed in, um, you know, the, the race that Fred and I met on was with Katie Hester, who won a state Senate race in Maryland in the closest election in the state with the t- highest vote total 
for the state in that year. Oh, so, I didn't even know all this. Oh yeah, <laughs> you didn't look at all the stats. Come no, on, I just, I just the look at the, the stats are the info. I look at win loss. <laughs> yeah. Well, for a while we didn't know if it was going to be a win or a loss. This is true. I had a feeling. Anyway. Yeah. No, I thought we would pull it out as well. But yeah, no, we had more votes in that race than any other state senate race in the state. Wow. Um, and a closer margin of victory than anywhere else. It was it was a very, I would say, polarized but energized race. And, you know, I when Katie asked me to become part of her campaign, I didn't feel like I could say no because I was one of the ones who had asked her to run in the first place. Fair. Uh, so, you know, I wasn't really planning on being that involved or planning on, you know, doing a full-time position for her, but, you know, it, she's inspiring and what she does is inspiring because she doesn't tow a party line. Uh She uses independent analysis. She uses her experience. She uses her perspective to, you know, to come up with practical solutions and, you know, if nothing else, I like to think of myself as a pragmatist, you know, practical nature is, you know, where, where you will find me. Um, So after that, you know, I, I I have my hands in in a number of different races, but wasn't doing it full time. And then came back over for Dr. Terry Hill's congressional race and took over the reins of her campaign um, to take over the late and the great Elijah Cummings seat. And I don't think any of us really believed we would win. I mean, we, we were holding out in our hearts that it would happen. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, practically speaking, we didn't really think we could win. But it was a really important race and a really important candidate because in Congress, we don't have very many Black women. No. And of those black women or even, you know, expanding it out to women of color in general, not just black women, we have no, you know, people of color or women of color doctors in Congress. Oh, wow. And if we're talking about healthcare and we're talking about, you know, what is that going to look like and what is the coverage and we don't have that voice at the table, the one who's, you know, not only living it personally and, you know, living it as somebody who may not always be believed or, you know, doesn't have the same um, background training, I guess. I don't know exactly how to say it. You know, it's, you know, like rashes for, you know, look different on different color skins and medical school doesn't teach what rashes look like except on white skin. So she lives it personally because doctors may not see it, but then she also lives it professionally and how she interacts in that same, I would say, traditionally white space Hmm. um, and how she navigates through that and how her voice is heard. And, you know, she's, you know, that's, I think that's really important. And her voice needs to be in Congress and, you know, obviously not hers um, because she didn't win that race, but, you know, we need those voices. We need those diverse voices in politics. And, you know, it's, it's those types of candidates um, that pull me, that pulled me back in. And, you know, not the least of which, you know, the theme being they're both women, um, big on women candidates. So Amen. that's how, that's how I, how I got back into it. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. And thank you for uh, your commitment to uh, this good old political work. Um, as Becca mentioned, <clears throat> um, a lot of her work has been in Maryland and North Carolina, right? Because that's where you, where you went to college. Um, a lot of my political work has been all over the place, <laughs> mostly Maryland. 
a good amount of Georgia, some Louisiana, some Virginia, uh, some New Mexico. I just couldn't couldn't stay still for a little bit uh, in my life, starting to settle down a little bit more. Um, <clears throat> but one of the things I just want to highlight there, and, and we're actually going to be working to, you know, bring on some some special guests who can talk specifically to those kinds of issues, uh, mainly like healthcare disparities amongst uh, Black people, particularly Black women, particularly uh, in, in childbirth and things of that nature. Um, primarily for the many of the reasons that, that you mentioned is that in order for there to be um, legislative initiatives that start addressing some of these issues, um, we need people in uh, and we need people in the world to be able to uh, actually enact policy that will change those things. But in order to get people into legislative chambers to change these things, we've got to get people who want to run for office. And in order to get people to run for office, um, most people who run for office, especially women. No, not most people. Let me take that back. Because I don't think white men need anybody to ask them to run for office. Overwhelmingly. And then after white men, I don't think men in general need anybody to ask them to run for office. Um, <clears throat> I should have looked this statistic up. Don't have time right now. I would like, you know, look it up and footnote it. Um, but I do I've read this several times. Overwhelmingly, women who run for office run because they're asked to run. And it's not as simple as like, yeah, I'll do that. Because one of the things that always bothers me is that I've seen this several times, both at the local and the state level, to where people will be asked to run for office and repeatedly. And then they'll say yes. And then it's like the bottom drops out because there's no support there. There's no infrastructure. And, and one of the things that really, really, really bothers me, especially um, when it comes to black women and I'm not going to you know, say that that's not the case for other people. That's just, it's just the way I've experienced it is that what happens is they're continuously asked to run for office. They eventually give in and they run. And then there's no support or infrastructure there. And something, uh, something suffers, whether it's the family or whether uh, it's the actual campaign. Uh, and, and I do believe there is a world and there should be a world to where you can properly and successfully sort of run for office and you don't have to have your family unit disintegrate while you're trying to win an election. Um, the problem is, as a Democratic Party, nationally, local and statewide, we have not done a good job of creating systems and organizing and infrastructure that help support these same candidates who we say we want to get in office, but we don't actually do anything to help them get in office. And like, there are some programs and I love like Emerge is a wonderful program. And there are lots of other ones that train women to run for office and stuff. But I think, and this is part of, you know, I think the apparatus of what we want to help build is that you, it's not enough just to ask and then train. You have to have a variety of things in place to help make the, the, the actual process of running for office, something that doesn't make people want to pull their hair out. Like one of the things I noticed on Katie's race and then on um, a couple of races last year with, uh, with women candidates is a small thing of like childcare and just how there is still um, this not so subtle expectation that women bear the largest part of child rearing. I've, had, I've worked with two male candidates and I've like, I never heard from either of them. Oh, I got to pick the kids up or the kids have to do this. Whereas with every woman candidate I've worked with, we have created her schedule around the kids, like literally everything. And so um, like those are the types of things that like aren't, we're not having conversations around. And yeah, we're having conversations somewhat around like, you know, universal childcare, shout out to Elizabeth Warren and whatnot. But 
I think there are lots of barriers like that one. I mean, we could probably go down a list and create thousands of them. Well, can we also mention that even if, you know, you didn't hear, I have to pick up the kids from the woman candidate. If she doesn't, she gets punished for that. Mm. Yeah. 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 I've got, she's not putting her family first. (laughs) Uh, I got no retort there. Right. Man, we got to do better. Um, Got to do way better. But, uh, so yeah, that's one of the things we want to we want to highlight, and definitely start having not just conversations around that, but I do think there's a world in which if we have those conversations and and we have them with the right people, and then present um, potential solutions to them over time after having conversations with folks who know what they're talking about, I do think there's a world where we can solve uh, issues like that. Like to me, there's no reason why you know every even year there's not some sort of like apparatus or some sort of fund that will help pay for childcare for candidates. You know, like I think that's a pretty, you know, sort of simple thing that I don't know if anyone's ever thought of. Uh, and I don't know what the whole compliance issues around that are, but you know, if corporations are people, there's a way around anything. I don't care what anyone says. So um, <clears throat> big focus for us. I'll tell you a little bit about myself and then we'll dive into um, our topic for the day. Um, I uh, was born and raised, well, I wasn't born and raised in Georgia, actually. I was born in North Carolina. Uh, and then grew up in Georgia, went to school there. I had this funny circumstance in high school uh, where I knew I was going to college because like that's just what you do after high school. Um, but I didn't have any sense of like, oh, I want to major in this or do this or do that. And, and in hindsight, the expectation that I would have known what I wanted to do in my life at 16 is just really stupid. Um, and, you know, and, and I think it's kind of unfortunate that we ask children, literal children, to make decisions that are, that can be hundreds of thousands of dollars in consequences down the road. Like, (laughs) uh, but anyway, that's a different conversation. And so I had a a really, really dope government teacher, uh, you know, just asked me what I wanted to do with my life and what I thought about doing in college. And I was just like, I don't know, I'll just go. Uh, But we talked and, you know, had some conversations around like political science and government and law and all that good stuff. And I was like, cool, that's it. That's what I'm doing. Uh, And it just so happened that that was at the same time that this skinny guy with a funny name who happened to have brown skin was running for president. So I definitely just dated myself there, Um, which is fine. I'm still a spring chicken, not even in my prime yet. Uh, And so especially compared to me. (laughs) I mean, I mean, you didn't go to college when like Reagan was president, did you? Well, you're still young. It's fine. Uh, and I have lots of feels about Ronald Reagan. I'm sure we'll get into those in many episodes. Um, worst president in the modern era. I think he might actually be worse than Trump. Anyway, different conversation. Uh, they're up there. I mean, well, maybe we can't accurately have that comparison. It's like another 20 years. But Reagan's pretty bad. Like, really, really bad. He's not worse than Trump? Really? The way that Trump has systematically destroyed okay. our system of law. Okay. 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 I will take that back. Trump's the worst, but Reagan is like a very close second. Um, that can be an entire episode. We should make that. Uh, but anyway, I, I divert. <laughs> um, and so I went to school and I immediately got involved in like SGA, the college Democrats, really excited, found a little niche there. And so I always told myself, hey, I'm going to go to college. Uh, and then I am here for four years, I'm going to go to law school. So that ended up happening. Crazy thing is, I got to law school about halfway through, hated it. I hated it from day one, but halfway through, I really hated it. Had no plans of actually going back after my first semester. Uh, and I'm, <clears throat> I'm not sure what, at the end of the day, really led me to go back. Um, 
you know, my dad was one of them, definitely encouraged me to go back. And then I had Sherilyn Eiffel, as a matter of fact, as my civil procedure professor. Um, <clears throat> and I sent her an email, you know, saying, hey, I, I'm not sure if I want to keep doing this. And, you know, that was the longest response I ever got from her. It was incredibly heartfelt. Um, so I was like, all right, I'll do it. But in the process, I was like, all right, well, if I'm here and I'm going to finish this, especially like halfway when it's like you already got half the loans, dude, you, you have to finish this. It doesn't make any sense not to. I was like, all right, I'm here. Well, how do, how do I best use this, you know, to do something that I'm not going to hate that also like pays good money? Uh, and so I ended up doing a, uh, being a legislative aide down at the Maryland General Assembly uh, for former state senator Joan Carter Conway, who was chair of the most uh, entertaining committee in the Maryland General Assembly, uh, put it that way. Uh, and uh, there just learned, learned a lot and connected with a lot of good people. Uh, most notably like state senator Antonio Hayes now. And uh, actually after law school, I ended up starting uh, a master of divinity at Emory because I was like, yeah, more school. You know, I'm going to go be a preacher and be like Reverend Barber, which, you know, might still happen. Uh, not like Reverend Barber, but, you know, maybe still a preacher. Uh, and but I was like, I can't do school anymore. I was like, this, I can't do this. It had been seven years. I don't know what made me think I could do three more years of school. I was really ambitious and just, you know, whatever. But realized, one, I was tired of school, and two, I was tired of being broke. So I dropped out of Emory. Uh, one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life. But, uh, you know, obviously, from there, I was like, oh, okay, need money. I'm poor. These loans need to be paid back. What's going on? So anyway, got in touch with some, some folks that I had met uh, in politics in Maryland, especially Senator Hayes. Uh, and he was um, actually sort of leading and helped lead the charge for uh, a Baltimore City Council candidate by the name of John Bullock at the time. John and I had met months before. I just liked him, was volunteering heavy with him, knocking on doors. I was saying, I didn't really have anything to do. Uh, and I just, you know, I just, I just, I just liked John. I thought he was a laid back guy. So funny thing is, before I actually left to go to Emory, I was knocking doors with John. And uh, we I forget who he introduced me to. And he, was like, he was like, yeah, this guy's going to be my campaign manager. And I just kind of laughed it off. I was like, ah, I'm moving back to Atlanta. Uh, um, and then come, come January of the following year, that actually did come to fruition. So that was pretty cool. And then since then, John actually ended up winning, uh, stand-up guy. And since then, you know, I've done a lot of races in Louisiana and Maryland. Um, did some work with Organizing Corps uh, 2020, which is one of the best jobs I had the opportunity to do. We'll talk more about that later. Um, and so here we are now. And I think the, the biggest thing for me from a personal standpoint, like why I decided to get in politics, it wasn't just like work based or work related. I don't think people get involved in this work just to make money one because there are a variety of other things you can do that will pay you more. Um, and that will work you way less. So, you know, I, at the end of the day, like this really isn't something you do um, at its core for financial purposes. But there were two things that really drove me. Um, one, I think, was like just disparities in healthcare, especially in like mental health. Um, like I always hate that, like, and I love that we have more, love that we have more like notoriety, more publicity, whatever words you want to use around like mental health and taking care of yourself and whatnot. But so much of that is always like, hey, call this hotline or check on your friend. And it's just like one of the things I really want to focus on is like, yes, those things are important, but we have the means and capability to help fund people to go see therapists. Uh, you know, it's not enough to just say, oh, you know, take care of your mental. And if you're having trouble or having suicidal thoughts, call this number. It's like, no, we can make sure everybody has health care. 
we can make sure private insurance have to cover therapists, psychotherapy, and even, you know, psychiatrists. We can make sure that they're not charging, you know, $2,000 for medicine that some people need to have stable moods. Um, like these are, like we talk about a lot of these things in, in this broad sort of fairy tale spectrum as if we just need to bring awareness and there's nothing we can do. When in reality, there are systemic policy deficiencies that lead to people dying from mental health, from disparities in black women healthcare, so on and so forth. Like people die because our government is still too far right leaning, like period. Um, and we could unpack that for thousands of hours, but that is like really the truth. Uh, and that's one of the things I want to just bring to light and, and help change. And, and I, I'll shut up after this. I've talked a really long time and I, I, I'm verbose. I know I'm going to work on that. But one of the big reasons why I really like working with candidates as, as like a consultant, business project management, whatever, is that you get more vantage point, more visibility, more time with the candidate. And I have seen it to where I've been able to move the candidate to a certain position over time. Um, or at least get them to see other, you know, viewpoints on a particular issue that maybe they wouldn't have if they were working with someone who maybe wasn't um, as, you know, leftist or as progressive on something. So um, a variety of spectrums and scopes that, that bring this work together. Um, I've talked a lot. I don't know if you want to close the loop or anything. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty much my finding is that once you start rolling... There you go. And, and I mean, generally speaking, it's interesting and not really interested in cutting you off. But, um, but yeah, and, you know, I mean, just on the last point as well, you know, coming from North Carolina and starting from a position where, you know, my, my parents are not registered Democrats. You know, I grew up in, I would say, a fairly conservative, at least politically minded household. Um, and, and carry that with me. And, you know, I have a, I worked for the federal government for 10 years, over 10 years. And I tend to be conservative in the way that I think sometimes, yeah. which I doubt anybody would ever really describe me as conservative um, in any other aspect of my life. But, you know, there's also a knowledge there and a realization of how the other side, I don't know if we say the other side, um, thinks and works and, mm -hmm. you know, what the priorities are there. You know, I can, I can go home and have a conversation, you know, with my father in particular, he's the registered Republican. My mother's an independent, which she should probably be a Democrat, but whatever. Um, you know, I can go home and have a conversation with my dad and, you know, kind of figure out the, the why behind, you know, certain policies or certain perspectives. And, you know, I think that's also, really different, especially in Maryland, where we're in a blue bubble. And, yeah. you know, it's, it's culture shock for, you know, when the kids go off to college, because everybody here is so blue. And yeah, fine, we've got the western part of, the, of Howard County, that's not as blue. And, you know, there's other, you know, the eastern shore isn't as blue. And yeah, it's not like the entire state is. But generally speaking, you know, we, we start from a different place than, you know, different than a lot of the different states, especially in the south start from. Yeah. So, you know, having that conversation and having that perspective, you know, in talking with candidates and everything like that can be, you know, I think you and I butted heads a couple of times on that <laughs> during Katie's, Katie's campaign, because it's, it's just, I start from a different place. Yeah. No, no, I agree. And I, and I think like anybody who kind of knows me is, I actually don't consider, I don't label myself a progressive. I do think I am 
like fairly left leaning, but you know, I've had people call me a pseudo black Republican and I'm like, eh, you know, that's cool. If you, if you, if you feel that way, I think a part of that is like growing up, I did grow up in Georgia. My dad's a Marine. And so like whether or not <clears throat> I like it or not, I think as I get older, I do see where just some of those subtle sort of conservative ideological points come in. Um, and this is one of the larger things and we should, I mean, I've, we've got a bunch of topics to devote uh, to other episodes, but you know, part of that is like when we talk about the base, it's the name of the show, like overwhelmingly black people are conservative, uh, to be totally honest. Um, the depths of some of that need to be unpacked and those span a variety of different topics from things that probably aren't, uh, aren't as inclusive as they should be, uh, like the tendency to, you know, uh, still sort of be opposed to to gay marriage and and things of that nature um, and be opposed to to uh, reproductive uh, rights for women and so on and so forth so there are some things to reconcile with the with the base as well um, but but I do think that's a reality and and something I'm trying to you know work to address and just sort of understand more about more about more about myself um, which I think this leans into a, uh, our topic for today really, really good uh, in that I think it's what, 54 days until the election when we're recording this? I think that's um, right. Finally. And uh, it, Trump's been president for a long time. Like this has been a long four years. For at least 20 years. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, this has been a really long four years in a way that like, you know, 2013 to 2017 wasn't to be totally, at least not to me. And I spent those years a good portion of those years in law school and they didn't feel this long. And so it's just, you know, seeing everything that we've seen since his election um, for, from, you know, the women's March to, you know, the variety of protests to, you know, protests to Trump, but also police brutality um, and, and systemic racism and, you know, misogyny and so on and so forth. One of the things I really just try to get a lot of people I know to understand is just like, okay, cool. All that was great. All that is needed. All that is a part of democracy. But we are 54 days away from being able to do what all of that stuff was about. Um, and I know you had an interesting perspective on this and just could provide some personal enlightenment. So I just want to, you know, I don't want to uh, talk over your point there. You don't want to talk forever like, like normal? No, 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 no. I'm, I'm working on that. Not normally right now. Next time. Yeah. No, I mean, so the way that I, that I, you know, have explained it is that there's, there's a spectrum, right? And you have the people who are out on the streets with a bullhorn and they're yelling about how change is needed. That's a really important part of things. And you have, you know, the people who are social media warriors, mm -hmm. you know, combating everything that's on Facebook and I don't know, whatever the kids are using these days, social media platforms. Um, you know, Facebook TikTok. probably, pro right. Facebook probably dates me. It's fine. <laughs> uh, you know, the, you have okay, the social boomer. warrior, keep the keyboard warriors, you know, that <laughs> kind of thing. Um, but when it comes down to it, none of that is going to actually effectuate the change. It puts pressure on the system, mm -hmm. and that's really important, but it doesn't change the system. The system changes when we have another person in the White House. We have a different executive branch. We have a different Congress because it's not just about the presidency. It's about, you know, changing, you know, flipping the Senate. If we can flip the Senate. Yes. Um, you know, we have the House standing as the stalwart, you know, in defense of democracy right now. It's, it's not enough. And, you know, up and I would say up until this presidency, I 
for the most part, thought that the presidency and the legislative should be split as to party control. And that would lead Mm. us to more pragmatic solutions, lead us to, you know, finding something that would make, you know, nobody's going to be, you know, everybody's never going to be completely happy. But looking at the different perspectives, bringing different perspectives to the table is the important part. This presidency has been so dangerous to our overall democracy, our overall rule of law, that I, I don't, at least for this cycle, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not saying that it should be split. Yeah. We need to do so much damage control as a country. And, you know, let's, you know, there are several huge issues that need to be addressed, such as the way that minorities are treated in this country. Even putting, you know, that huge project aside, other huge projects like that, the way that this administration has gutted certain laws, certain regulations, certain administrative procedures, it's going to take a good five years just to undo that damage without even looking at, you know, some of the really huge problems that, you know, we have in this country and that we, you know, obviously we need to address them, but you know, it's, I guess it's the old adage, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? Um, you know, and we may have a herd of elephants here. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's going to take so much time. Um, but it's just, it's just not enough. It's not enough to go and vote. And, you know, I have at least one person on my Facebook feed who is far left of the leftist person you probably could think of, you know, who's saying, oh, you know, this, no, there's no candidate here that's left enough for me. Yeah, that, that's, that's not, that doesn't work. <laughs> you know, you know, you can, I don't even know who to, you know, Hugo Chavez, maybe, I don't know, who, who do we put way left? You know, they're, they're not on the ballot, you know, and the third party candidates, you know, I don't know if Green Party's even that far left, you know, left enough for this particular person. Mm-hmm. Those third party candidates aren't going to win. So, your cho- you have a you have a two person choice. You have a two male choice. How about that? Pretty much you have a two man choice. And you know, in Maryland, okay, fine. You know, I'm not as concerned about you doing that protest third party vote. But in any state that's not overwhelmingly, you know, blue or you know, I mean, even red. Although this election, they're saying there's very few states that are pure red at this point um, with everything that's gone on. It's just, it's, it's not okay. And it's not, it's not good enough, you know, find space within the administration um, to, to move the needle. And normally speaking, I hate that. I hate that advice, you know, work within the system. Yeah. Let me bang my head against a wall. Like I hate that advice, (laughs) but at this time, like that, that really, really, go bang your head against the wall, you know, maybe we'll make a dent in the, in the drywall or the plaster or whatever, you know, um, because it's just what's gone on in the last four years. is just, you know, it's not even a matter of, you know, solving. I don't know if we can even solve, but, you know, coming to a place where we can address some major issues, mm. it's having the system to be able to address those issues mm. doesn't exist. That's good. I wanted to just hold a little pause there to let that, uh, let that, let that marinate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like soothe a little bit. Um, I'm totally with you, so I'm not even gonna, gonna belabor the point. I think the biggest thing for me though, when I see people, 
say that and they'll argue, oh, you know, both parties are oppressors. I'm not going to, you know, engage or support or endorse an oppressive party or system. Like, I get that. I mean, I get you'd have to move out of the country to not support any sort of oppressive system, <laughs> even if you don't vote. I mean, you still are buying hey, goods. Island? I'm not sure how you don't get into some sort of oppressive <laughs> governmental system. Right. I mean, I, I just, that's, that's the nature of the world we live in, not the world as it as we might want it to be. But the biggest thing for me when people are like, oh, I'm not voting for either one, or, you know, you can't vote shame me or whatever. It's just like, I get it, bro. But like, you're getting one regardless. <laughs> like, Donald Trump or Joe Biden will be president on January 20th. Like, whether you like that or not. Uh, probably not January 20th. 20 I think it's gonna, I think it's, oh, I think it's gonna have to be delayed. Oh, with wow. all the mail-in votes and all like, Especially if it's close, all the challenges. I don't even know if it's going to happen in January. No, it's going to be a blowout. <clears throat> yeah, Biden, okay. Biden by 20. <laughs> you're crazy. I'm an optimist. Um, but like you're getting one of them, like regardless. And so like I, 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 never, I don't understand. Like I, I see a lot of people who try to make this really sort of, you know, um, wonderful, illustrative, beautiful explanation that's so intelligent and deep around, oh, I'm not voting for either person, or I'll just skip that whole line, or, you know, my protest vote, and I'm just like, okay, dude, like, that's cool, like, you're getting one regardless, why not vote for the one you'd rather have over the other, like, it's a test that just doesn't add up, and we'll dive more into this in our next episode, like, really talk about the morality of the protest vote, but it's like, it's, it's not a... And this, well, this is another episode too, and just we talk about just some of the mistreatment of Senator Harris and just some of the tropes that come with her. But it's just like, I think we have these unrealistic expectations of what politics should be and what politicians should be. And we don't place those same expectations on anyone else. Oh, the purity test? Oh, yeah, and we for damn sure don't place those expectations on ourselves. <laughs> and so it's like, why is this the only institution in which you expect both the institution and the individuals within it to be perfect. Like, are we uniquely, is our politics and the discourse uniquely trash right now? Yes. But a part of that is because there was this uh, obtuse narrative in 2016 that Hillary and Trump were the same. And I was fighting against it then and I'm fighting against it now. It's just like, no, they are not the same. One is unequivocally uh, very much so worse and oppressive and, author and authoritarian than the other and look at where that got us. And so I get it. I'd rather just people say, and I've said about that. I'd rather people just say, look, I'm not going to vote. <clears throat> and that's cool. But don't try to make this deeper. No, no, no I'm not okay with that. <laughs> so not okay with that. Let me go vote. Let me clarify. But like the, there, there seems to be this new sort of trend to, I'm, I'm going to cast a protest vote. And here's why. And you write this PhD dissertation about not vote shaming people. And, all, and it's just like, you know, no, none of this, this test doesn't add up, bro. I also want to know who cares? Yeah, who, who's reading your, your dissertation <laughs> or your thesis on your protest vote? You know, who's looking at, oh, you know, this third party candidate got, you know, 2% instead of 1%. I mean, it's, it, it's shouting into the void. Nobody's hearing you. If a tree falls in the forest, does anybody hear it? And no one's around. Does anyone hear it? Yeah, I've always wanted to use that line. I finally found a way to use it. Um, <laughs> this is good. I think next week we'll really dive into the morality of the protest vote. Not and, and, and the goal there is not going to be to vote shame, but to really try to get folks to, to understand uh, 
what's at stake, I think. And that's the biggest thing I, I think we want people to understand is just the, the consequences of another four years of, uh, of Donald Trump. And, and, and I think that's what we want to try and encourage people to see from folks, I think, who have a good understanding of the level of nuance that comes with elections and government and so on and so forth. So a lot of goodies uh, coming up, morality of the protest vote. We're going to talk about the courts. Uh, it's the court stupid because that's really what's on the ballot um, this election as well. And if you want to live in, a, in an America where conservatives have a six to three, maybe even seven to two, uh, Supreme Court justice majority for the next 50 years. Yeah, you'll cast your little protest vote. Um, yeah, I mean, just just a lot of a lot of stuff that I think that and and I have tried to do a better job of like checking my privilege at the door. Like, I do have a law degree, like I have two degrees, I work in politics, there's the nuance of understanding like, what's at stake, not only at the Supreme Court, but federal, you know, courts, so on and so forth. Like, I get that that is a level of knowledge that I have that is steeped in some privilege. And so there's an aspect of, yeah, we're going to do a little bit of vote shaming. But there is an aspect of like, one of the reasons why we were going to have those conversations and we're on here is to try and educate around some of that stuff. It's not just a matter of like, you know, Trump or Biden. It's a matter of all the other things that are on the ballot and what you're choosing or not choosing when you select one of those names. Um, any parting shots for us? Well, I mean, I'd also, I don't know. I want to challenge those single issue voters too. You know, like the, you know, I'm pro-life, so I'm going to vote for, oh my gosh. you know, I'm going to vote for the pro-life candidate regardless of what else. Like, I think we need to package that in there because that's so far left field or right field, I guess, depending on your side of things. But, you know, looking at things so singularly, it's just, it blows my mind. Goes back to the purity test. I agree. Um, yeah, just so much. It's going to be fun. I'm actually excited. Yeah, it's going to be dope. Um, this is the base. You can check us out uh, on Spotify. Hopefully Apple will have it up soon. Apple and Google. Apple is the worst. They take forever to get your podcast up. Like, but anyway. Um, Don't challenge the juggernaut. Yeah, I know, right? That's why their stock is slipping right now. Um, <laughs> this is the base. Check us out. Share us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, whatever you whatever you guys use. Um, you all, see? Smash the Patreon. Um, thanks for joining us today.